0: You know, I've seen it in my own neighborhood of Greenwood. We, I'm in a neighborhood that's, you know, kind of a mix. we got a traditional business district that was built around the streetcar line, but we also have these auto-dependent places. And over the years, you know, some of those parking lots have turned into apartment buildings. And as more people came to the neighborhood, it created the demand that filled up the empty storefronts in the traditional business district. And that, that just wasn't true when I first moved here. They were boarded up, you know, we always had several boarded up stores in the business district. So when you add people, you're, you're adding customers to your local business district.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns Podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. I'm John Zimmerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your grateful host during this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in it's always wonderful to have you along for the ride in this episode i'm super excited to share with y'all a conversation i had a few weeks ago with michael mckinn former mayor of seattle washington and the new executive director of america walks a 20 year old national nonprofit organization that has been leading the way in advancing safe equitable accessible, and enjoyable places to walk and move by giving people and communities the resources to effectively advocate for change. But first, before we dive into that conversation, please allow me a moment to mention that this episode is once again being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. Thank you also very much for your amazing support. To learn more about Active Towns, access some of our other content, and make a donation, just head over to our website at ActiveTowns, that's plural, dot org. You'll see the blue donate button at the top right corner of the page. As always, I've included a direct link in the show notes. Okay, let's get this conversation with Mike McGinn rolling. Mike, how are you? Welcome to the Active Towns podcast.
0: I'm I'm very good, thank you. Uh nice to see you again. I think the last time I was admiring your folding bicycle which you had taken off the plane and biked from the airport to the hotel to the conference hotel. So I've been I've been studying that. I have not yet made the plunge to to actually be able to do that, but I have been studying that.
1: Fantastic. Yeah, I, it's it happens to be a Brompton uh, bicycle. They're made in in London, England. And yeah, it goes everywhere with us. Whenever we travel either domestically or internationally, it just, it's so convenient to be able to have your bicycle with you. You can, right. you know, you can literally strap the luggage, your, your luggage onto the bike and ride right out from the airport, you know, to your you know hotel or your Airbnb or to your meeting site, your conference site. It's, it's so, it's so cool. It's so fun. And it's, it's, it's empowering. You know, there's a great deal of freedom with that.
0: Well, yeah. You and David Byrne, he even wrote a whole book about yep. this, about, yeah. about how he loves, you know, since he travels a lot for his music, the, the ability to explore a town on bike. And I'm, you know, I'm the same way. I like, I like to go, when I go to a conference or I go to some, you know, out of town meeting, I always, and boy, we don't get to do that now anymore, but when we used to be able to do that, and when we get to do it again, I always try to just build in an extra day because I just yeah. love to either walk around the community, and if I can get a rental bike or a bike share, so just to see a little bit more, I will definitely do that when we go to the go to a place. Um,
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. In fact, so what, the, the book that you're referencing by David Byrne is Bicycle Diaries, and it's yeah. just it's a Fantastic, uh, sort of just like his thoughts and uh, and you know obviously he's famous as a musician and w- from the band the Talking Heads and uh, I guess he's out on Broadway or was out on Broadway before the lockdown so yeah good stuff yeah he's he's one of those famous people who also happens to be a, an advocate for active mobility
0: well and, and it it puts you and this is you know think about this when you when you take a vacation. You always want to go to some place where you can just be out in, in the environment fully, right? right? You can see and you can hear and you can experience and smell everything. And that's what, you know, and you said freedom. So it turns out we're all kind of experts on getting around. Um, You know, like sometimes there are these people who call themselves the experts. They hold all this knowledge. Um, they tell you how roads should look and how things should work. But right. we're all... It turns out we've all been doing this thing, you know, since basically human beings, you know, got upright of how do we get around and what is our what's the environment like that we're in and how does it make us feel? And, yeah, no, there's a level of expertise in people and communities that we neglect when we uh, either defer to the experts or don't get out of the car ourselves and just feel it and see it ourselves. So.
1: Yeah, exactly. Now, I'm trying to remember, I think the, the fir- very first time that we met in person was in Minneapolis, um, yeah. out at the Strong Towns National Gathering. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you remember what year that
0: was? Not exactly. I want to say
1: 15. Oh, it might, oh, so maybe even, I was thinking it might have been 2013. Couldn't recall whether it was still during your term as mayor. It was, after my, it was after my term as mayor. Okay, so it was after your term as mayor. So yeah. so why don't you give us, uh, give the listeners a little bit of a background of your history? Sure. We've already let the cat out of the bag a little bit. You yeah. used to be <laughs> the mayor of a city. So who is Michael right. again?
0: You know, I'll start off, we'll start at the beginning. You know, I am an East Coaster, grew up on Long Island and, you know, went to school in Massachusetts. And after college, I got to go work for a U.S. congressman in D.C., which was uh-huh. a great experience and kind of got me engaged in, in politics and thinking about politics. Uh, he was he was a congressman from Oregon, of, of all places, considering I was a Northeasterner, but um, I made the connection through friends. And I ended up uh, moving to Oregon, moving to Seattle to go to law school, and became a lawyer, but was also really active in the Sierra Club and really active in my own neighborhood of Greenwood. I moved here and there were no sidewalks. So I started focusing on... Um, how do I get sidewalks in my neighborhood? which brought me really just into this into the this deep rabbit hole of transportation funding. because what I was told at the time was there's we have no money for that. And that's part of the appeal of strong towns. they They explain why cities say we have no money for that. They've been putting all the money into other things, and they don't have enough money for kind of those granular, investments in in places. So that's what pulled me into local politics. But as I said, I was also volunteering for the Sierra Club and working on helping try to elect environmental champions to office in the state of Washington, uh, whether Congress, the State House, and then local elections. And all of that work in community and on transportation ballot measures and zoning changes uh, led me to start a nonprofit in Seattle called Great City. And the idea was to bring together Uh, neighborhood advocates and and, uh, environmental advocates and other, you know, advocates, you know, more of a grassroots type approach, but working with uh, local business people and working with the government, the goal was how do you make a place that's uh, environmentally sustainable, socially equitable, you know, and vibrant and thriving. So this was in the mid 2000s. And uh, that experience we worked on getting a parks, we got a parks levy on the ballot and passed over the mayor's objection. Uh, We got a complete streets ordinance passed uh, working in coalition with other active transportation partners. We, we did a lot of public education around what makes a a great community. And I also got a lot of experience in just um, dealing with all the different and meeting leaders of different constituencies and communities around the city, which led me ultimately to run for office. It wasn't in the plan but I was so deeply involved in local politics. I thought the incumbent mayor, while he'd done good things, was not going far enough on climate. And uh, I decided to challenge him and I won. So spent four years in office and got to work on just all the range of issues that a city faces. Uh, we we did a road safety action plan with a, a goal of zero injuries and fatalities on our streets. You know, The vision zero goal, we uh, did street eateries, you know, and parklets. We did road diets. We we tried to call them safety redesigns. That phrase didn't stick. We invested in redoing roads in communities that were the heart of local communities, as opposed to simply investing in the big the big highway infrastructure uh, that so many people want or, the you know, the big new projects, the mega projects. So all of those things were things I got to work on in the city, as well as, of course, all of the issues around, you know, supporting the local business community supporting our local immigrant and refugee communities, of, of which we have many, supporting schools and education uh, from the city perspective, um, supporting service workers and and you know the challenges they face in a city like Seattle, in which housing prices are going up. So it was a remarkable experience, and then to you know try to wrap it up after uh, my term in office. I've just continued to engage with local advocates here in the city of Seattle around active transportation, worked with a statewide organization called Feed First, working with uh, uh, advocates in in communities around the the state, um, as well as working on fossil fuel divestment and other climate initiatives uh, as well. So just a mix of things. And then the America Walks job opened up, and it really Felt like the right place to apply, so I'm I'm just really excited to have a national platform for this work.
1: Yeah, fantastic! I love that. That's it's such a great story, and and I just laughed when I saw that you uh, had been selected as the executive director. I'm like, oh, that's so perfect, (laughs) given your history and your background.
0: I've gotten that reaction from a lot of my friends. It's just like, oh, what a great fit. Yeah. you know, and part of the reason it's a great fit and what I really like about America Walks is that, you know, organizations have to decide how they fit into the the, the ecosystem of advocacy organizations or the broader ecosystem of politics. And what America Walks really wants to do is support local advocates in their work. So we have a walking college that trains people in the issues and, and gives them some basics of organizing and and. They all have to come out with a walking action plan that they're gonna implement. We do webinars to educate people. We have connections with big walking organizations around the country as well as grassroots ones. And so that's our goal is, is not to you know, just be a mailing list, trying to activate people to contact Congress to do the right thing. And, and that really wouldn't work for walkability in walkable communities, because those decisions are made at the city and local level, in the county level, in many cases. And so you need people on the ground in those places who are passionate and have some skills and they, and they can call up somebody across the state or across the country to get some ideas about how to solve a problem. I mean, if you're going to change all of our communities, we need advocates in all of our communities, holding those conversations with their neighbors and their local elected officials and local bureaucrats. And... You know, that's a different proposition for an organization to try to achieve. And I'm really excited to be part of an organization that's that that's their that's their mission. That's their central mission is to support a movement uh, right. by, by by really getting really taking people up the learning curve and giving them some of the courage, you know, to overcome obstacles and skills to mm-hmm. overcome obstacles and, and make changes in their communities. And right. I was one of those guys. I was one of those guys. I. Didn't realize that when I started trying to figure out how to get sidewalks in my neighborhood of Greenwood um, or deal with redevelopment in the business district, you know, those were like early things. I, I didn't realize where it would lead me. And I didn't realize I had a sense of how important it was. But as soon as I got into it, I'm like, man, this is at the heart of solving so many different issues. If we can get places right just, you you, you start to get at climate, you can improve health, you can improve equity uh, for people. And who knows, maybe one of those people we support, you know, well, I know many of them have, they end up running for city council, they end up running for mayor, they end up getting on their local planning commission. Uh, they make that passage from advocate to decision maker. And we need more champions in office too, around these issues, no matter their uh, partisan nature. The fact is that sidewalks and Safe streets uh, should not be a partisan issue. That's that's right. that's something that people can agree on. I hope. Yeah. yeah no. Absolutely. And <laughs> in fact, you know that that
1: brings us back around to what we were talking about earlier in terms of the strong towns movement and the right. strong towns organization uh, is is very much a nonpartisan uh, you know initiative and education effort uh, and you know because. Strong towns, active towns—you know these are healthy places. They're vibrant places. It, it is a nonpartisan issue in in so many ways. So you mentioned the the webinars uh, sure. that you guys do. Uh, you've got one with uh, the the wonderful new author Angie Schmidt. Uh, yeah. She has a, a brand new book uh, published by Island Press, and the webinar is also called the same name as the the title of the book, which is Right of Way. Race, class, and the silent epidemic of pedestrian deaths in America, and uh, is that going to be co-hosted with uh, with uh, Charles T. Uh, Brown of Rutgers?
0: Yeah, so Charles will be interviewing uh, Angie, and we're really we're really excited about that. That, and you know, I got to get my copy of the book and read it. It's just coming out now. Uh, some local, you know. Uh, I heard somebody on Twitter saying that is this the unsafe at any speed for our generation. I guess that's we're all in we're all now uh showing our our age. Unsafe at any speed was the book by Nader I believe about the Corvair,
1: mm. oh, right yes highlighted, mm-hmm.
0: which highlighted just the complete lack of safety considerations in Detroit automotive, you know, in Detroit cars at the time and it led to a lot of changes in automobiles, you know, seat belts. That's the question. Will this book by Angie spur the same kind of reexamination of our practices and our yeah. to to make our places safer? Because yeah. you know, pedestrian deaths have been going up in this country over right. the last number of years. You know, as as cars get safer for the occupants, they're getting a lot less safe for the people walking. And as Angie points out, it's it's you know black and brown people who are by far receiving the brunt of the injuries because of the, the streets in their neighborhoods are less safe. And, and, you know, there are other reasons as well, but but it's primarily one of the systems we build. We build systems that expose, you know, our diverse communities to more danger. And our, and our elders and, and, the, and uh, the disabled and our, and our young people, we expose them to more danger for the benefit of those in cars. Right. It's wrong and we should change it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's it's wonderful that uh, uh, Charles uh, T. Brown uh, out of Rutgers, is going to be uh, posing the questions. He, of course, wrote the foreword to the book. um, And uh, and he was also a guest here on the Active Towns podcast a few episodes earlier. So if you haven't had a chance yet to listen to that one, uh, you'll definitely want to go back and listen to it. It's it's a great conversation with Charles. So. Wonderful. So what what sort of the the vision for the organization looking forward?
0: Well, you know, I think I'm in the process of of working with the board and the staff and our advisors and and everybody to develop that vision. But it might be worth talking, you know, not so much about the vision, but about the context in which we we're we're, not, we're operating now. Right. Yeah. Because I think that that points us to where the vision should be. Right. You know, obviously there are two we spoke about one, which is the inherent inequity in our our transportation system. And we touched on roadway design. We, we touched on on automotive design. Um, there are other inequities around who is, who breathes bad air and who doesn't. Um, so I think that that as, as this country has become so much more aware of, you know, racist you know systems and racist practices, this has just been an explosion. You know, some have used the phrase a great awakening. And we're going to have to see, you know, the degree to which this new understanding is going to stick. And we have to translate that understanding to specific policies and actions. We have to we have to take these things to heart and then actually create change at the local, state, and national level, uh, you know, on those issues. So I think that this is one area where America walks has been leading and wants to continue to lead, Angie. Obviously, but we've had a series uh, called "Walking Towards Justice," that uh, webinar series that examines this. We actually have a series on on this in Native American land. Like nobody's really examined this issue closely, and so we're we're working with a great set of advisors from tribal communities to take a look at you know what can be done in that in that arena as well. So this is a this is. And this reflects while while the protests around George Floyd and everything that's happened there has, has elevated it to a level, it's building on the work of many activists over many years to take a to take a harder look at this. And again, in, in terms of how we design our streets and communities, this has to be a priority for America Walks. It has to be a priority for communities. And and we're gonna, you know, continue doing that work of, of trying to focus on that. I think the pandemic. Has really exposed quite a bit too. It, it's like exposed all of the weaknesses and flaws in our system, our economic system, and and the way our communities are built. And again, there are some people who are really taking the brunt of it. You know, essential workers who have to go. You know, who who live in housing which may be more crowded because it's multi generational, and they have to. You know, they can't afford a, a more expansive space, and they go to a workplace. Uh, where they're an essential worker but they're breathing you know indoor air and there's we don't have the health systems there's all of these inequities have been exposed at the same time as that's occurred there's been this tremendous relocalization like as people stayed home and we're told that walking and incorrectly that walking was healthy and and good for your mental health as well and to restrict your trips but go to your local stores i mean there's I think there's been a renewed appreciation for what it means to have a walkable community from, from a lot of folks in this country. You have to bring transit into this equation as well. The pandemic has made a huge hit to the funding for transit. It's often funded by both by fare box revenue, although that's usually you know a small portion overall, but it's funded by sales tax revenues or some other revenues. And those have all taken a huge hit and people are fearful of transit but it's still transit is still essential to so many people in our community and essential to our economy so we need to take a look at you know what take a look at what we've learned here and and try to apply it moving forward and that's one of my questions is the number of one question let's finish the transit question are we going to fully commit to supporting transit when revenues go down or are we going to commit to figuring out how to take whatever revenues we have and finish all those big highway projects that have already been started or that are, or that the highway departments have already wanted. I mean, that, that's a big, big policy question about who are we gonna support with our transportation dollars? And that's going on in Congress, but it is also going on in cities and towns and counties as they have to deal with these really hard hit budgets. You know, is Is the money going to go into a new road on the edge of town or a new bridge on the edge of town? Or will it go into taking care of the local streets that that serve a more dense population, which might be lower income? Now, by the way, I said that, you know, having a safe place to walk and having a sidewalk is and should be a nonpartisan issue. It tends to be at the really local level. That's true. I found that in my work. You know, people could come together around that. But as you go up the different levels, things like transit become politicized and highways are very politicized. And there's a very tough conversation we had about who's helped and and who's hurt by these investments and who benefits from the big appropriations for one thing, uh, the highways, as opposed to who's hurt when we cut transit. So I, I don't wanna minimize that there are really big policy choices that have partisan implications in, in, in decisions that are made. So that's the other place I think we as an organization have to get more involved in, not just your safe and walking conditions. You know, it's not just about sidewalks and crosswalks. It's about housing in affordable in communities that can be affordable to people. If there's an existing walkable community, um, we should allow more people to live in it and, and gain the benefits from that from the, the health and economic benefits of that. So that, that implicates zoning and land use. Um, we should make sure that people can extend their walking trip by, by being able to take transit to a job or another destination. So for me, it's not America Walks is not about sidewalks and crosswalks, it's about all the elements of a walkable community so that people can get all the benefits of a walkable community. Um, so that's another, I think, big piece of the puzzle And one thing I'm wondering about is we saw in the, a lot of cities and towns step forward and said, we're gonna close off a portion of our main street. So businesses can put restaurants outside. We're gonna open up healthy streets for walking. Is that gonna survive post pandemic? Will we all see how great it was to have some of these amenities? Or are we gonna go back to the traffic engineers saying, uh, hey, you know, pandemic's over and we gotta make sure the cars are moving fast through this neighborhood again, that's the priority. And that's a, that's a policy choice as well with big implications. So I don't know if I gave you the vision yet, but uh, those are the things I'm thinking about. How do we, as an organization, give people the tools to really effectively engage their communities, their local communities on resolving those questions in a way that, you know, really provides safe and equitable communities. By the way, I left out one, I gotta add yeah. one, I'm sorry. I was talking about race and social justice and about the way investments affect that. But this is a huge issue as well. It's not a walkable community if a person does not feel safe walking in their community. So we look at what happened with Ahmad Arbery. We look at uh, Christian Cooper, you know, who you know another person in the park called the police on him because you know I'm being threatened by a black man. I've worked with our immigrant and refugee communities here in Seattle, and if you're a a Somali Muslim woman walking in the street with a hijab in a Seattle suburb, are you gonna get yelled at? Are you gonna get you know, potentially run off the road because of your appearance? That I think is another huge issue that everyone's grappling with. How do we ensure that our public spaces are safe for black people, indigenous people, our immigrant and refugee communities, that they're safe for everyone, which really starts at raising some very difficult questions about the role of, uh, particularly in the, you know, enforcement of street and traffic laws. How do we do that? Because right. what we know is that those systems are, you know, I'll use I'll use uh, Seattle as an example. We intentionally reduced the number of, you know, pushed the police department to hand out fewer jaywalking violations, right? That wasn't really the the safety issue. There were other safety issues we should be working on. And they went down a lot. We, they were reduced by seventy-five percent. You know, some officers were still handing them out, but you know what we found was, even though we reduced the number, the percentage, and the overrepresentation of you know young black people in those jaywalking tickets remained. And you know, if you can't hand out if if if, if the jaywalking ticket is being used to profile and target a young black man that's not going to feel like a safe community for him to walk in. And right. yeah. those, these are really big issues that we have to grapple with. So yeah, we're even into issues around, uh, and have to be into issues about what is the role of police in the public spaces so that we can have truly walkable communities. Yeah.
1: And it's not considered safe and inviting unless it's safe and inviting for everyone. Period. Absolutely. Period. Yeah. Period. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. And. That's yeah. a wonderful sentiment, but I think that what we've seen is for many people in our country, right. it's safe and inviting if there's right. certain type of people aren't around and they don't well, say it. I want to admit it, yeah. but they don't have to let go of that, and leaders are going to have to and are going to have to acknowledge and and confront that and say, no, no, that's not that's right. not that's not our community ideals, and we're prepared to change our practices around that.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. When we return after this quick break, Mike and I talk about the politics involved with funding walkable, bikeable places, the impacts that the devastating COVID-19 pandemic is having on communities, and his recommendations on community engagement. But first, if you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please be sure to subscribe to and rate it on your preferred podcast listening platform. And help me grow the audience by telling a friend or two. Thank you. Okay, that's all for this very brief intermission. Let's get back into our discussion with Mike McGinn. One of the things that you just mentioned was uh, about the fact that these should not be partisan issues, but right. the reality is is that they really are. And in fact, an excerpt from Angie's book uh, she published uh, today as a guest uh, publisher or guest uh, author uh, in Streets Blog USA, which she used to be the uh I don't know, primary editor or chief editor at one point in time, and it dive deep into the realities of how much defunding from walkable, bikeable, or you know, initiatives and and things of that nature, you know, have you know been pushed forward by one party versus the other party, and 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 so it's the the stark reality is is we need to be honest with the fact that. Yeah, it should not be a partisan issue. It should be just as we talk about at active towns and at strong towns is that, you know, this makes sense. On so many different levels, including being fiscally conservative, yeah. <laughs> you know, it just I has know. a great return on investment. I know. So it, it's just it, it's baffling that that we have to have these discussions. Now, you also mentioned transit, and I wanted to yeah. dive a little bit deeper into transit in the sense that we had this discussion early on during the pandemic, um, both with Alyssa Walker. Uh, she writes a journalist with curbs uh, down in Los Angeles, and then also with uh, Kia Wilson and, you know, talking about the fact that, Hey, and I think you alluded to it. Are we going to start to consider transit as truly being part of an essential service that needs to be preserved because there's an entire Group of our population who may never be able to uh, afford or drive a car for a variety of different reasons.
0: Nor should we force people, right? I right. mean, that's one of the things, right? Yeah. We've, we've, I mean, I always kind of crack up at people who accuse, you know, us progressives of social engineering. I mean, what what could be more socially engineered than the price of admission to the economy is buying a car? Um, that's, that's, we've designed our places, we've planned our places and built our economy around that. And, and now we have to confront that reality too. Like, as we move forward, we have to recognize that, you know, for many people owning a car is the ticket to having access to jobs and opportunity. And, uh, and that's a reality that we've spent, you know, some 75 years or more making reality. And it, we're going to have to do the opposite, create an opposite reality. And, you know, when we look at this funding, you know, there, there's this belief always that, you know, somehow or another roads pay their own way. Um, and they don't. They're they're paid for with taxes. No, the, the, And the gas taxes are never enough. They're paid for in the city of Seattle. And they're paid for, I'm sure, in many places across the country by your property taxes and sales taxes and business taxes. And what we say is, you know, understandably that a street is important and we should, you know, we should fund streets and roads because it's a public good, but we view transit as something for you should be so lucky that we give you something since you are, you know, since you can't afford a car, you know, just be thankful we gave you something. In fact, then we often call them a a captive, you know, a captive audience or, you know, they're transit dependent. They have no other choice, but to you, you know, to use transit. And we really should be thinking about our transit systems in the same way we think about our roads. Boy, in this pandemic, we've learned we should be thinking about internet in the same way we think about our roads. You know, all, all the kids that are going going to school remotely, and if you don't have a good high speed connection, you're going to be left out. Now, we should have been building great high speed connections to people as well and treating it more like a utility uh, than treating it as, you know, a uh, A private market good or a handout to those who, you know, again, should feel fortunate they're getting anything from from everyone else. So there is a tipping point, I think, in communities and and Seattle has reached that tipping point where now transit measures in the city of Seattle are extremely popular because the the transit system is robust enough and critical enough um, both to the business community and to residents that there's support for it. But in a lot of places, most places, transit hasn't reached that kind of critical mass. And it's it's seen as a special interest rather than a, you know, essential part of government, just like uh, making sure the roads are paved is. So that, that, again, will take more advocacy and more work. But what we see is that when you invest in those systems and you start getting the frequency and reliability um, and you start getting the usage, the public the public opinions on, on supporting it shift as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one of the other things that is becoming quite obvious uh, and really the pandemic sort of brought to the forefront in, in our consciousness is that uh, we had this sort of pent up demand for occupying our public spaces and, and really the, the disproportionate amount of our public space which is has been traditionally reserved only for the the use and storage of automobiles and so that's that's kind of an interesting place because we now have this new relationship with our streetscape more people are out there walking biking rollerblading yeah. doing all this sort of stuff and part of it is in, in many cities, uh, is that there was a dramatic decrease in the number of motor vehicles out on the streets, uh-huh. and the sidewalks were getting too crowded, as well as the, the right. pathways and the and the trails. And so, <laughs> you know, people were desperate for space because they needed it for physical distancing to stay healthy, as but they still needed to get some some exercise in. Uh, Talk a little bit about that because that's an interesting societal shift of of a new a new awareness for yeah. what streets are for.
0: Yeah, and you know, and that 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 relocalizing that occurred where you were, I think the trip numbers, you know, like the average distance that a person traveled in their day, like just dramatically dropped during the you know the early stages, it's, and it's gone back up again, um, but it's still probably lower. Uh, because a lot of people are are conscious of that. You know, the issue we have is that, th- that streets are um, so much of the, you know, the right of way is dedicated to the movement of vehicles, which is a pretty inefficient way to get people around. I know if you're in one and the roads are clear, it feels awesome. But uh, what we know is it doesn't scale, to use the Silicon Valley term. It doesn't scale. As soon as you get up to a certain number of cars, the entire system just seizes up. And it doesn't work and then it turns out to be not working well for anybody because now the buses are caught in that traffic and the you know the pedestrians are dealing with it and everybody's dealing with the pollution from idling engines so but what you're getting at is like one of the hardest issues in local politics i had to deal with it all the time it seems like so much of local politics is is centered around one question which is where will, where will we put all the cars so if you're going to propose a bike lane and taking away some parking, you get that. If there's gonna be a new apartment building in a neighborhood, um, they better have a lot of new parking in in it because otherwise they're gonna take away my parking. Um, If you put in a bus lane, same question. So we've privileged this one mode of transportation which moves relatively few people per the amount of asphalt dedicated to it. We've all seen the the graphics. and people are using it for really short trips. I mean, we we think about the commute trip, but people are using it all the time for half mile and uh, you know trips or trips that are under three miles, which could really be well served by walking or biking or or transit, uh, particularly if you allowed more destinations near people. right? Like like for a lot of people going to the grocery store when they're at home, could be their walking trip. There's got to be a grocery grocery store near them. There has to be a corner store near them, um, which is probably illegal. So really, we've made walking in the street illegal, right, with jaywalking. Uh, we've made the corner store illegal with, with zoning laws. We've, we've made all these things that make up a traditional town, the ones we'll hop on a jet plane to and spend a lot of money to go to because they're so gorgeous and fun to be at. Um, we've made those things illegal. They're literally against the law to have that place. And I just hope people, you know, having breathed in the air of a street that didn't have a lot of cars, having experienced the quiet that went along with it, having experienced what it felt like to be able to walk somewhere and and or not be able to walk somewhere and wish they could, that they'll take a harder look at all of those laws that have locked us into an unwalkable place.
1: Yeah, yeah, good point. And that brings us right back around to something you alluded to earlier, which was the land use and being able to tackle and sort of reimagine how land can better be utilized and how we can have more meaningful destinations within easy walkable and bikeable distances. And we're seeing this in city after city, after city of trying to do both, you know, the, the large scale rewrites of their entire land use development code, but then also having even micro battles of just trying to make it legal to have accessory dwelling units, or uh, like in the case of Boulder, you know, you know, a community group trying to get on, uh, get a ballot initiative onto the ballot in November, just to make it legal for spare bedrooms to be (laughs) occupied by people. Imagine that.
0: I know there's so many rules, right? Like, like, let's just pick out one that people, most people probably don't even know exists, but the number of unrelated people that can live in a house is a very, very common, very... <laughs> now I got my wife sneaking in and out of here.
1: <laughs> it's, all, it's, all, it's all good, yeah. And and you know what? You're exactly right, though. That's, that is is the, the, the law or the policy in Boulder that they're trying to get onto the initiative and that's not like they want to completely repeal it they just need to they want to soften it a little bit and 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 boulder's not alone i mean many cities have this uh, you know in uh, austin does as well but you're right many people don't even realize that these you know ordinances and policies exist which make it so difficult for us to sort of gently add densification you know, to the housing stock that's out there. Because many people have, you know, unoccupied bedrooms that, you know, they might be able to benefit by having a little additional
0: income. And think, think about this idea that we regulate the number of unrelated people that live in a house, right? Like, like, how do we get, how did the government decide, you know, now if you're part of a family, that's okay. You can have as many family members as you like, but you can't have non-family members do we really want government deciding who is and who is not family members? Like, just from a, whether you're a liberal or a conservative, that doesn't really seem like government's job. Um, And this, this idea obviously comes from, you know, it's trying to control behavior in a community in a way that, you know, it's derived from, we don't want those people moving into our neighborhoods, whoever those people are. And let's be honest, it's usually, uh, black or brown people—that's where this is coming from. You know, who bring their practices or their living style or something, but it's all just—we want. There's this ideal of we only want people of means who who are living in a typical nuclear family or perhaps extended family and no one else. And I—that's I, just not. That's not reflective of what our society is or should be. That we've created. Uh, a place and let's just extend this out, right? It's whether you can rent a bedroom, it's the number of unrelated people that can live in a house. It's whether you can have a backyard cottage, it's whether you can have an apartment building. All of these things that we've said you can't do. You know, we've gotten rid of all the single room occupancy hotels because they were, you know, weren't the appropriate standard for our communities. And we're now at the point where we've got thousands and thousands of people pitching tents to have a place to live. And our rule is well, you can't have that either. We're going to send a team down and scoop up your tent and scoop up your belongings. And you better keep moving around in your car too, because you park it too long in one place. We'll tow that. And so the most basic human need, building a shelter, right, for yourself is literally illegal. Now, how did we get to this place, folks? I'm sorry, I'm getting up on my soapbox here, but how do we get to this place where somebody can't? Have a safe place to lay their head at night, and it's enforced by the law, and it's enforced by public attitudes. And it begins with, you know, what seem like relatively innocuous provisions, but when you add them all up and you do it for thirty or forty years, there's no place for anyone. There's no place for someone of low means to live in a city, and that's yeah. just wrong. That's just wrong, and we really need to. You know, we can make the economic arguments, but ultimately at heart, it's a moral argument. And we need to get over ourselves and our image of our perfect little neighborhoods being just the way we want. You know, it's not just not in my backyard. It's not in your backyard either. Right. Right. right? Yeah. That's what we do. Not in your backyard either, because that's this is my neighborhood. And I get to say who lives here and I get to determine how they live. Right. Yeah. You know, that's America. Right is what they'll, they'll and let me tell you, man. They all yelled at me when I was mayor. I'll be real clear about that. I got yelled at as mayor, and I'm supposed to be sending out the police to sweep homeless people from an encampment. I, I, it's it's not right, yeah. and we need to connect the dots and get over ourselves and start acting like everybody deserves a place to sleep. Everybody deserves health care. Everybody needs to walk down the street safely. This is this should not be this hard an issue but we really have to take a look at at why we're doing it and and what the consequences of all these decisions are. Sorry, I I do yeah. feel strongly about this as you gathered.
1: Well, and the interesting thing is too is that you know, one of the biggest challenges whenever these topics come up of of addressing the opportunity to create some gentle densification to an area very simple rewrites to codes and things of that nature there's a fear that 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 people feel like oh my gosh the character of my neighborhood is going to be destroyed but almost ironically one of the things that they they fear most is that it'll get parked up and the traffic volumes will increase on their streets and at least for the short term, it's it could be very, very interesting to see where we end up because we're, we're now hearing that we just don't know. We may actually be living with, you know, coronavirus for, for some time. We may have a situation where employers, you know, are like, you know what, this is kind of working, having people working from home, uh, you know, in fact, many large employers have said, yeah, we're not planning on bringing our employees back until maybe at the soonest 2021 summer. And so, wow, that, you know, so all of a sudden, if somebody's primarily able to become more ultra local, be able to walk to the corner store, if there is a corner store, be able to walk down to the restaurant or, or ride their bike, etc. Suddenly, there's that opportunity that all of these meaningful trips to, you know, meaningful destinations aren't being done by car. Wow, you know, maybe, you know, <laughs> all of a sudden, hey, maybe an
0: additional person doesn't mean an additional car. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing, right. And, and you know, I've seen it in my own neighborhood of Greenwood. We, I'm in a neighborhood that's you know, kind of a mix. We've got a traditional business district that was built around the streetcar line, but we also have these auto-dependent places. And I moved to my neighborhood, uh, you know, 20 years ago at, maybe 21 or 22. Moved here a while ago. And over the years, you know, some of those parking lots have turned into apartment buildings. And as more people came to the neighborhood, it created the demand that filled up the empty storefronts in the traditional business district. And that, that just wasn't true when I first moved here. They were boarded up, you know, we always had several boarded up stores in the business district. So when you add people, you're you're adding customers to your local business district, you're adding more eyes on the street, you know, if you, with people walking, which is good as well. And those destinations, as you said, make the place so much more pleasurable than simply having them to drive to get to the place you want. I'd also add something. This is now for the more budget-minded folks in city hall. You're usually adding another taxpayer with very little additional expense associated with them. If you're adding a taxpayer at the edge of town, they need a road, they need the sewer pipe, they need a water pipe, they need all those things. If you add them in in, in a place where you already have all the infrastructure, you have somebody else to help pay your bills. And that's really important too. So There's so many benefits if you don't just ask the question. What about all the cars? And one more comment about the backyard cottages, which I think are great. We should be allowing those absolutely. And I'm going to date myself with this reference as well, but maybe this is the generation that needs to hear it. You know, the Cunninghams—they let Fonzie live in the apartment over their garage, and they were about as middle-class suburban as you could find, you know, Richie Cunningham's mom and dad. And what's so bad about that, folks, you know? And if you look at your typical old place that had, you know, the store on the ground floor and some apartments above it, that meant that the person who worked in the store, you know, the, the clerk at the grocery store could live in the neighborhood. They didn't have to take a bus across town. And I don't know, it kind of makes me circle back to this pandemic question we have. Right. Like allowing people to live in walkable neighborhoods, you know, by 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 permitting all of these different types of uh, housing choices and investing in low income housing um, is a pandemic response. It means people can have um, they don't have to be crowded into their homes. They don't have to travel as far. um, And and that relocalization which is so critical to fighting a pandemic. I mean, the pandemic spreads because we all travel distances. And right. right? The pandemic spreads because somebody goes from one place to another place and brings the virus with them. If we're relocalizing our activities, that's a pandemic uh, uh, fighting strategy, as well as a climate fighting strategy, as well as a balancing your city budget strategy, as well as a health strategy. We have no shortage of arguments here, John. We've never had a shortage of arguments. What we've lacked is the, you know, kind of the political will which is generated by the public demand to you know, come on, come on, City Hall, you know, get to it and let's invest in those communities that we all say we want, but we just kind of gotta get over our hang-ups about it.
1: Well I certainly hope that this experience, this trauma that we're all going through and and the pandemic has truly been devastating to people people's health, people's personal uh, situations, the 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 economy, maybe even their livelihoods. And, but at the same time, it's, it really is challenging us to reimagine what our neighborhoods are for, what our streets are for. And so I'm hopeful that uh, something positive will come from that reframing within people's consciousness. What advice do you have for our listeners that is you know, inspired to do something in their community? What advice would you give them to to get them out there and making a difference in their community?
0: And you know, I think part of it, I and mean, one of the things I wanted to say is, you know, that we're here to. America Walks is here to help. If you are um, a, a local advocate, if you're a part of a local organization, you know, connect with us. Let us know who you are. Let us know what you're doing, and so that we can learn more about what you're doing and see if we can help you. Um, and we have we have a lot of work to do internally. I want to be clear. We 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 need to hear from the local groups about what's important to them so that we can deliver, you know, the content they need and the information they need or the tools they need to succeed. And we have a lot of work to do ourselves to continue developing these tools. But we want to hear from you at America Walks. I would say the single biggest thing, I think, for advocacy is is that kind of moving from and this isn't my phrase, others have used it, kind of moving from head you know, to heart to hands. And we can see the, the problem you know, analytically, we can see it. And then we can start to feel it, like we need to do something about that. But that, that next step of, of actually taking action is oftentimes the hardest one, because it, it's gonna expose you to potential criticism, right? You're gonna take a stand and you're gonna say something that maybe one of your neighbors doesn't like. Or maybe somebody is gonna, you know, come at you. And I'm not just talking about Twitter, right? Some people are just fine having arguments on Twitter. It's it's actually talking to your community members and talking to your local elected officials and 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 heading in a direction. And you know that takes a certain amount of courage. There are a lot of obstacles to doing that. There were obstacles for me to do that. And and um, you know, will it make a difference? Do I have the right ideas? Who am I to speak up and say, this is what we need, right? Like, am I more qualified to tackle this than anyone else? And I think the best way to deal with that is to talk to other people that are doing it. Um, really take the time. And and if somebody's already doing it, if they're any good at it, if you ask to talk with them, they're going to sit down and talk with you because they want to know who you are and what you care about because they should be trying to pull you in. So, and that's how I learned. You know, I was really fortunate in the Sierra Club. I joined the Sierra Club. I had no idea. I, you know, I'd worked for a congressman, so I knew a little bit about politics, but I didn't know anything about how do you organize a public education campaign or how do you try to support someone running for office? Or how do we try to get a law passed? And, but there were people that were already doing it. And there, there are groups like that out there right now. And so I just look around, pick out something you're passionate about, find somebody out there who's already trying to do the work and the more local, the better, you know, the more local, the better and call them up, say, what are you doing? How do you do it? Do you need help? And you'll start figuring out how to make a plan that makes sense. So you can join in with their plan and learn how to make a plan and you'll start getting a little courage. And we all need other people to have courage. That's the bottom line. We all need other people to have courage and, and, and there's something really powerful in that. And that first time you take a step beyond, you know, I'm just, I have an opinion around the dinner table to, no, I'm i am going to go try to create some change. You're going to stick with it, I think. Lots of people stick with it. And they, they start because of the idea. They start because of the outcome they want to see. But, but people tend to stick with things because it, there's nothing more meaningful. In my life, there's been nothing more meaningful. I've made the best friends and the, you know, the staunchest companions with working with other people who want to change things. It's just super meaningful. And, uh, you know, and, and it doesn't have to be your active transport organization, you know, and that's that's why churches are sticky. You know, you go down and, you know, hopefully your church is trying to figure out how to feed the poor and house the homeless. And that's great, right? Like that you that you have a mission and you have people to work with. Um, it could be your Rotary, you know, organization. I'm going to encourage you to pick an active transportation organization. I'm going to encourage you to, you know, try to do something to change your land use policies. I, I think it's great if it's if it's an organization that has really thinking about how to be anti-racist, how to undo the decades of choices we've made that have led to such inequity and injustice. You know, I'm going to encourage you to do that. But you pick your own. Just make sure that, you know, you're working with people who, who are genuinely, you know, of good faith, trying to make the community better. I, that's the only path out of all of this trouble, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's an
0: antidote to hopelessness, too. If you're ever just sitting around saying, man, things are bad. Well, number one, you're right. They are bad. And and you probably feel like you ought to do something about it. Well, start in your own neighborhood, because I guarantee you there's something there that needs fixing.
1: Right. Yeah, Absolutely. That's absolutely beautiful. And what wonderful uh, advice and, and coming from somebody who, you know, really, this is how it worked for you in the sense that yeah. you, know, you started getting engaged at the local level. And, uh, you know, it, it just it gave you, you, you gained the skills and the confidence. And, you know, from there, next thing you know, you're mayor. How about that? <laughs> call the, call no, the tiger by the tail. What the heck just happened? Yeah. I'm not necessarily <laughs>
0: recommending running. running no, exactly. But some of you oughta. Some of some you. Some of ought to. you oughta. in charge now in yeah. your city or in your state? And I'm, I'm sure some of you are better than them. Okay. But I'm not recommending it. It is a big. It is a big personal choice. But it was a great one for me. It was yes. a great one for me. And once you get engaged, you don't know where it's going to take you. You're going to meet great people. And you're going to do fun things.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, okay. Mike, thank you so very much. Uh, it's been an absolute joy and pleasure having you here on the Active Towns podcast. Uh, look forward to the next
0: time. Absolutely. Thank you, man.
1: Thank you all so very much for tuning into this episode. I certainly hope you've enjoyed my conversation with Mike. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to America Walks and some of the other resources we mentioned. One final reminder before we part ways. If you're in a position to do so, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to Active Towns so I can keep bringing you this content. Just go to activetowns, again, that's plural, dot org, and click on the blue donate link at the top right corner of the page. Thank you. Well, that's all for episode number 50. That's right, big five zero, folks. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity health and happiness. Cheers.